Our Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the privilege of pausing, leaning in together to hear from you. And we ask that you would lend us your ear, lend us your voice, give us your mind, give us your eyes, give us your hands and feet. We are yours and we love you. Give us, we pray, that greatest gift of all, your own Holy Spirit. Now bless James too, that he can be a blessing to each of us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Just uh, as Mark mentioned, a quick announcement about a coming event on Monday. Dr. Tom Quinn, who is a professor at the University of Washington, their Seattle campus, uh, an astronomer, is going to be with us to share some thoughts from his researchers at researches as a scientist in the area of astronomy and reflections on Isaiah 40. And so the topic there is awesome God, or awesome creation, awesome God, reflections on Isaiah 40. I think it promises to be a, a very challenging and insightful evening, an inspiring evening. So please come out to Parable Place and join us. This morning, what we are going to do is not just do a standard full song set and then have me come up and speak afterwards, but we're going to intersperse song and scripture as a way of trying to be a little bit more holistic in our approach to worship together. And so during the songs, please feel free to stand. When the scripture is read, please feel free to sit. Okay, and together we want to, we want to enter into the drama of scripture. We want to enter into a way of worshiping that is about telling our story and understanding our story as God's people a little bit. And so to do that, let's begin with prayer, shall we? And I'm going to ask you to stand for that. Here we go. You say the stuff in the bold type, I lead with the stuff in the regular type. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Amen.
our first scripture reader, Kirsten, come ahead. All right, our first reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 6 to 12 first. After he said this, he being Jesus, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intensely up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath's walk away from the city. And now we'll head to chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came down from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. There were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, and because each one heard their own language being spoken, utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonder of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand with us.
The second reading is from Acts chapter 2. And for those of you who may not have caught it, the response when I say the word of the Lord at the end is thanks be to God. Chapter 2, verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men aren't drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. The word of the Lord. Please stand with us.
third reading is taken from the book of Acts. Uh, that's book two, or chapter two, verses 41 to 47. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Well, let's pray, shall we? May the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Very simple phrase. I want you to repeat after me. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ. A little bit more enthusiasm. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Very, okay, we're getting there. Now, here's a little bit of an experiment. I'm curious as to how many different languages are represented in this room this morning. I think there are probably quite a few. Let's start with North and South America. So we've got English. That's the home field language. Uh, we've got Spanish, right? Some Spanish speakers. Hands held high. Okay, we've got some Portuguese. Dennis, yes, good. Uh, French. Yeah, oui, oui. Okay, good. You know how to say Jesus Christ is Lord in those languages? Good. Rehearse it. Keep that in mind. Let's go over to Europe. Germanic languages. Jesus Christus ist der Herr. Jawohl. Okay. We've got some other ones, though. We've got German, right? We've got some German speakers here. Swedish. I know, okay, some other Nordic languages. Any Norwegian? Any Danish? Any Dutch? Loud and proud, you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. We got some there? Okay. Let's move further eastward. Any Slavic languages? Any Russian? Okay. Serbian, Croatian. Good. Jesus Christ is Lord, got that? Okay. Let's, what about uh, Turkic languages as we move into the Stans? Anybody can say Jesus Christ is Lord in a, Tur you know, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan? No? Oh, come on. Uh, India. Urdu, Hindi, Kashmiri, Punjabi, any, any of those languages? Or are you just being shy? Uh, East Asia, Chinese, yeah, Korean, Thai, Laotian, okay, Burmese, Bhutan, Nepal. How about Africa? <laughs> yes, which language? Okay, good. Uh, Swahili, Yoruba, Amharic? Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Good. Now we're getting some. Now well, we got some traction. Okay. Yes. Give me away. Yes. Just recently arrived. Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay. Now stand up. And if you know a language other than English, if you just know English, say it in English, but shout it out in those other languages all at the same time. We'll say it three times. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay. Ready? Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, one more time, just the non-English speakers. All together. Jesus Christus is him. Oh, it sounded like a jumble. Good. Sit down. If we just amp this up to a few thousand people, maybe that's what it sounded like, that first Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection that day that's recorded in Acts chapter 2. But then, other than a good story, why should we care? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Let's look at Luke's account of the strange goings-on that happened in Jerusalem 50 days after the Jewish feast of Passover. That same Passover which had been made notorious by the last-minute crucifixion of Jesus and the subsequent claims to his having been raised from the dead made by a group 
of his closest followers. Now, as President Mark pointed out last week, Jesus does not appear, or Jesus does appear to his disciples after his resurrection. And this is where Luke picks up part two of his narrative, the book of Acts. And Jesus commissions them to be his witnesses to an ever-widening sphere of geographical expansion, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the world. This is global vision. And then he says something strange. Rather than Mark set go, he says, wait. Wait for what? Well, wait to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, whatever that means. And then something very strange happens. He is caught up in a cloud before their eyes. He's taken from their sight. Two men in white appear telling the disciples, don't look up into the sky. In other words, he hasn't gone upwards. He's not upwards somewhere in outer space. He hasn't gone directionally away from you to another part of the cosmos. He has gone into the realm of heaven, which is something quite different. Now, at this point, so far so good. Now, at this point, we need to stop the narrative and explain a little bit about the biblical understanding of heaven. In order, because otherwise, the rest of the story is not going to make sense, or at least as much sense as it should. So bear with me, and not with apologies, but just with a nod to Dr. Imes, that anything, any of the pieces that I miss from the Old Testament story here, please feel free to straighten your students out afterwards. And me too. Okay, but I'm venturing into that territory. All right, heaven is not a place. This is what we have to understand. We have to get our heads around something other than perhaps these uh, misguided, well-intentioned but misguided views of heaven that, that many of us were raised in. As in, just, it's, you know, way out in outer space. God has, you know, that Sunday school ditty about heaven being out there somewhere. It's not somewhere in the cosmos where Jesus is resting until his return. In other words, we, we fall into the trap of a kind of a sequential understanding of the Trinity. The first act, it's all about God the Father, right? He's doing his creation, he's Old Testament, and then he finally gets his part done, and he can send Jesus. So he's off stage, and then Jesus gets the second act, and then he's done his bit, and then he takes a rest, and the Holy Spirit takes over. Now, we have to understand the work of salvation as a thoroughly Trinitarian working together all the way along. Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit are always working in concert. All right, so not, we have to understand Acts as this happening as well. It's not sequential, it is together. So a better way to understand heaven is, and I'm using N.T. Wright's work here, is the dimension of reality where God's perfect rule is already being realized and practiced. It is the place, the dimension of his reign, where his reign as king is uncontested and fully enjoyed in all its abundant goodness. It exists alongside earth, but it exists in a reality that is in the sense perhaps, I'm gonna get a little platonic here, perhaps more really real, but no, it's where his reign is fully realized. It is the dimension from which God initiates his purposes for the salvation of the world, yea, even the renewal of the entire cosmos, so that his rule and goodness, already present and established in heaven, will be fully experienced here on earth. That's why Jesus gives his disciples and us that prayer. Our Father, who is in the heavenlies, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. That's the prayer. And that's our alignment. That's how we need to understand the relationship of heaven and earth. And so how have heaven's purposes been initiated on earth? By God coming to establish his presence among his creatures. And where that contact between these two dimensions takes place, where heaven breaks into the earthly dimension, where the holy invades sinful, fallen, earthly dimension or creation, these places came to be known as the gate of heaven. And we could make the case that right at the Garden of Eden is already the first gate of heaven. It's where the heavenly, where God comes and freely fellowships with his creatures, Adam and Eve. But then Adam and Eve sin, and it seems that the gate slams shut, and they are banished. 
one of the first vivid references post-fall that we have of a new gate being opened is when God appears to a dream, in a dream to Jacob. Remember the latter dream? Jacob is on the run. He has this. He falls asleep. He has this dream of angels ascending and descending from the heavenlies to earth. And he wakes up and he calls the place Bethel, the house of God. And he describes it as the gate of heaven. This is where heaven and earth have met, have come together. And we see this ongoing theme of the gate of heaven, the place where God's presence rests among his covenant people, developed at key points throughout the Old Testament. Easily the most spectacular of these is when God delivers Israel from captivity out of Egypt at Passover, leads them through the Red Sea, and then they arrive where? They arrive at Mount Sinai. Now, you talk about a display of celestial and, and divine pyrotechnics, right? A pillar of cloud, fire, loud trumpet, quaking earth, lots of noise, lots of sensory stimulation. God has led Israel there, and then his presence, a fire-like cloud, descends on the mountain. There is thunder, there is quaking, there is smoke. There's a voice like a trumpet that summons Moses to come up into the cloud on the mountain. He is summoned into the presence of the holy. And Moses ascends, and he's gone for a long time. But then he descends, and what does he bring with him? He brings with him the covenant law, the constitution of how Israel is to live as God's covenant people. And it was intended to give them a way of life that will act as a beacon and summons to the rest of the nations. It was going to be through them that the promises to Abraham, that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Israel was to be God's covenant people living this new way of blessing. Part of that way of life includes building the tabernacle, where God's presence will reside in the midst of his people as they journey through the wilderness. That pillar of cloud and fire will travel with them. That will, in turn, once they are in the promised land, give way to the temple in Jerusalem where the priest will enter the holy place once a year to make atonement for the people. These are the gates of heaven. This is the way in which God tabernacles with his people. But the whole thing goes terribly wrong, doesn't it? Even as foretold in the book, uh, by the time of the book Deuteronomy is written, and then afterwards, Israel finds themselves in exile. A small remnant does return from captivity. A second temple is built, and then later on refurbished by Herod. But it all seems a little hollow, doesn't it? The people actually are disappointed when they see it. It's not what the old temple was. It doesn't seem to be much more than just a very pale, shallow facade of what God intended. And furthermore, almost 500 years plus of no prophetic voice being heard in Israel and the subsequent conquest of Israel by another foreign power, Rome, means that the Jews, they may be in their own homeland, but they're still living in exile. They may have a temple, but the prophetic voice is silent. There may be a desire to seek God's presence, and the rituals of worship to invoke that are there, but it all seems a little bit hollow. They aren't fooling themselves. They're still an exiled people, captives in their own home. And then... This wild-eyed prophet suddenly appears in the wilderness. He's got a bizarre wardrobe, right? Camel's hair, bizarre diet, locusts and honey. And he starts talking about prepare the way of the Lord. He's followed very early, shortly by Jesus, the one who comes announcing the rule of God, the delivery of God's people, and the claim to be God's anointed one. But John gets beheaded by a fearful Herod. And shortly thereafter, Jesus is crucified by a cynical Pilate. And once again, the rumored Messiah has proved to be a false hope. But wait. His followers claim Jesus is alive. 
resurrected from the dead, no less. However, no sooner resurrected than once again caught up and departed the promise of worldwide witness and wait. Okay, so we sort of circled around back through the Old Testament to bring us up to speed to help us make sense of Jesus' ascension. And now we come to Acts chapter 2 and the annual Jewish feast of Pentecost. A feast celebrating the first fruits of the harvest. Just think of that, you know, if those of you have a garden, especially here in Alberta, and we look forward to the first ripe tomato that comes. And it's just a sign of all those other good things we've been waiting for through the summer and hoping the frost stays away long enough for us to enjoy its vast richness. Gardening in Alberta. This is, and then, and, but you don't get to eat it, right? It's the best tomato there, but you bring it to the temple and you sacrifice it because you're thankful to God for all the harvest that is to follow. So it's this feast of first fruits. And lots of Jews from around the empire in Jerusalem are there to celebrate the feast. It's quite an international gathering. And thank you, Kirsten, for just soldiering through that list of very difficult to pronounce regions and linguistic groups. You did it way better than I could have done. You just say it with confidence, and no one will know the difference except maybe Dr. Imes and Richie. But they're going to be too polite to correct you. And so, they're, you know, Phrygians, Cappadocians, all the people from these cool regions that we've never been to. They're here to celebrate the feast. And the morning of the first day of the feast, the disciples are gathered. They're waiting. Remember, waiting is a community activity. And then, shazam, a sudden blowing of wind. But it's not, it's not a wind that shows up on any meteorological tracking device. This is a wind from heaven. It's localized. It fills the house. And out of this sort of one pillar comes of, of fire and flame come these individual flames camping cloud-like on top of each of the people gathered there. And they begin proclaiming the wonders of God in the languages of the various people groups across the Roman Empire. Quite a crowd gathers, some amazed, some perplexed, others scoffing and cynical. They are hammered, they are tight, they are plastered, they are boozed up out of their mind. No! What does this all mean? Now, we need to be familiar with the covenant story of Israel to then fully understand what is going on and why it's happening the way it is. And that's why I've taken that time to do that exploration. See, Pentecost was not only the feast of harvest yield. It was significant for something even more memorable in the collective memory of Israel's story, in their collective consciousness. Pentecost, as the word indicates, is 50, 50 days after Passover. Now, we go back to that first is Passover when Israel is delivered out of Egypt. And they are, where they are they 50 days later? They arrive at Mount Sinai. That's Pentecost. For many Jews, it's the giving of the law at Sinai. What happens at Sinai? The cloud of God's presence descends. Moses goes up into the cloud, the gate of heaven, and he comes down with the tablets of the law. Israel's covenant charter to be the means of bringing blessing to the nations. But it failed, ending in exile and not blessing. And now, Jesus has been taken from them. He has departed into the heavenly realm, caught up in the cloud, and now at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends. Isn't that great? There's a beautiful symmetry to all of this. This is Jesus returning in the presence of the Holy Spirit, bringing God's new covenant, not written on tablets of stone, but the living word, the dynamic energy of the law of love designed to be written on human hearts. It's the very power that raised Jesus from the dead, and the Holy Spirit has now come to tabernacle in each willing heart. This is the new gate of heaven. Pastor Mark Francisco, who has spoken in chapel in years before, describes this event in a great way, where God's gate of heaven was always considered to be, and that was between the two pillars that marked the entrance to the holy place in the temple. Now, God has changed addresses. He's no longer there. He's here. That's right, two thumbs up. It's worth celebrating. 
It's just as, as John remarks in his opening prologue to the gospel. When Jesus comes, he, tab- he is the living word who tabernacles among his people. And now, no longer limited by the earthly constraints of an embodied that can only move in the dimensions of time and space, here, the Holy Spirit is now Jesus tabernacling in the human heart. God is doing a new thing. And this is the beginning of a new creation. This is the beginning of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But it's done in ways consistent with God's working in the past so that we can know it is truly his work and not a mere invention. Different but recognizable. New and yet in continuity with his faithful work and witness of the past. Just as that image of Moses being taken into the cloud, ascending and descending, so Jesus ascends to the presence of the Father in heaven. And now his ascending there allows the Holy Spirit to come, not limited by the constraints of time and space, but whose presence can fill the whole world. And so all of these languages are now proclaiming the wonders of God. Now, this is not only resonant with the Feast of First Fruits and the Gate of Heaven and the giving of the covenant in Mount Sinai. There's one other Old Testament image here we need to refer to, and that's the account of the Tower of Babel. Except this is the judgment of Babel reversed. Rather than the confusion of languages that thwarted the rebellion of a people to assert their autonomy from God, Now that same God will use different languages to summon all people to himself. This isn't just a Jewish story. This is Pentecost announces that the Jesus story is for everyone. It's for all of us. Amen? Now, in closing, I want to point out three quick things about Pentecost. There are more, but we'll we'll limit it to three. And they all begin, surprise, surprise, with P. They're greatly alliterated. Firstly, Pentecost is about the plenitude of the Spirit. Plenitude. It's a, it means a word, it's a word that means abundance, overflowing. The Holy Spirit is for everyone. And as Peter quotes the prophet Joel, the Holy Spirit is poured out without discrimination. Young, old, men, women, boys, girls, slave, free. The Holy Spirit comes to the gathered community who are waiting expectantly, and he proclaims the goodness of Jesus to all in all languages intended for all parts of the empire. Secondly, in Acts chapter 2, we see the prophetic role of the Holy Spirit. It's not his only role, but it's front and center here. Pentecost is about the Holy Spirit's prophetic voice. And after the initial sort of kerfuffle of the multilingual extravaganza settled down, Peter calls the crowd to order, he begins to preach a sermon. But his sermon is largely a story. And he's telling devout Jews their own story and how they have just witnessed, what they have just witnessed is a major part of it. In fact, it's a whole new volume. It's part two, which has only begun to be written. And he takes them back to Joel's prophecy some 500 years earlier about a new day of God's spirit coming in ways that would simply burst the gates of the temple and come sweeping down like a waterfall, sort of spilling over, not in our control, But at God's behest, giving life to a parched land, to parched lives, sweeping into the barrenness and the aridity of people's lives so that they couldn't help but proclaim his goodness. And the spectacular signs and wonders announcing this new day were a kind of poetic imagery often used to mark the significance and the upheavals of what was taking place. Nature could not help but be affected. And now we have this heavenly wind, tongues of fire, signs and wonders. We see that already at Jesus' crucifixion, a sun that is darkened and earth that quakes. So whether they're literal or symbolic or a mixture of both, they both bear witness to the truth of what's going on. But let's not let the signs distract us from what's really important here. And that is that the Holy Spirit is exercising a prophetic power in the lives of the people. That prophetic presence works in two ways. Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, preaches a sermon, and people are convicted of sins. That's one of the things that Jesus said the Holy Spirit was going to be sent to do. He was going to convict the world of sin. 
But then they are comforted by the forgiveness that Jesus offered. And the Holy Spirit is the comforter as well. So there we see his prophetic uh, office for, at the forefront. One last one. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is the power of the risen Jesus who reigns as Lord at the right hand of the Father. See, Peter's sermon story includes not only the witness of Joel, but the witness of King David. And Peter quotes David both in Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 to show that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Savior of his people, and that it was part of the plan all along for him to die and to be raised again. And thus Jesus is Lord, who is now being taken into a cloud up into the throne room of heaven. In other words, his ascension is his coronation. And now, because he rules, he can be present among his people by sending his presence through the Holy Spirit. No ascension, no Holy Spirit. When we get to ascension in the spring, we ought to celebrate that day in a big way. It kind of gets overlooked. Ascension is a good day to celebrate. And now the Holy Spirit is going to become God's agent of power to extend his rule on earth as in heaven. This is the power that changes lives. At times, the Spirit comes with great fanfare and flair. But as we'll see later on in Acts, not every time. Signs and wonders, tongues and healing, yes, at times. Still small voice, quiet invitation, everyday witness, yes, at other times. Both then and now. So we see the whole range of the Holy Spirit's power on display, and we dare not try to box him into a single formula. He comes on his terms in his way with the assurance that we will recognize him when he, grows, when he shows up. And sometimes, as at Pentecost, that outpouring, it looks like champagne. It's pop, fizz, bubbles, woo-hoo, wowie kazowie, this is great. It, it's, uh, it's intoxicating, right? I know some of you have drunk champagne, and you, you get, you know, the buzz, right? But at other times, if I can continue on with this metaphor, it looks like an ordinary cool drink of tap water that refreshes and replenishes. No party, just every day drink it because our body needs it, and it's life-giving. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the transformative work of a new creation. And that is the note on which our story ends. The plenitude, prophetic witness, and power of the Holy Spirit produce the fruit of the Spirit, the first fruits of a new creation. And it describes that community. It's a, king, it's a people that are a new kingdom, and the marks of their citizenship stand out. It is a learning community devoted to the apostles' teaching, a loving community of shared goods, a worship community of fellowshipping and breaking bread, and a witnessing community to which God is adding to their number daily. So where are you in this story? Where am I in this story? More importantly, where do you want to be in this story? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you this morning? May we wait in expectancy with open hearts to receive all that the Spirit wants to pour into their lives. I have spoken to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand with us as we get ready.
I want to close with a prayer from Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he, that is Jesus, may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let us depart in peace in the name of the Lord.